Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 178 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Jules Mitchell. You may remember Jules from episode 160. If you have not listened to that one, you definitely should go back and listen to it. Jules has been doing yoga for more than 20 years, and she's always been interested in anatomy. Over the last few years, she enrolled in a graduate school program and started to study biomechanics. So she has extensive experience in the study of biomechanics as it applies to yoga. And she has a new book called Yoga Biomechanics Stretching Redefined. We talked today about a topic that I think is really important in the yoga community, which is hypermobility. And Jules helps distinguish between what we think of as flexibility and what is actually hypermobility, which is a a collagen disorder. And it has an array of symptoms and it exists along a spectrum. So it affects anyone who has hypermobility, it will affect them differently. So we talked through kind of what as a yoga teacher in the room you can do about students who might have hypermobility. I found it to be a really enlightening, if slightly surprising conversation, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts as well. A couple quick announcements before the interview. We have just added a date to Jason's schedule this year. He's teaching in Boston at South Boston Yoga on May 2nd. So that's a Saturday. It's just quickie workshop. So if you'd like to get more info or register, you can go to jasonyoga.com slash schedule. And Jason and I will be joined by Stephanie Snyder at her lovely studio, Love Story Yoga in San Francisco. On March 6th, it's an evening event. We're doing a panel about radical self-care. So that's from 6 to 9 p.m. And you can go to lovestoryyoga.com to register. And I would love to see you there. Okay, enjoy the interview with Jules. So thanks so much for being here today, Jules. We're going to talk about a topic that I have been wondering about and thinking about for a long time, and that is hypermobility. Yes, I'm excited to talk about it. Good. I am too. And you have a short section on hypermobility in your book where you do define it. But I'm let's start off with having you define it for people. What do you mean when you say hypermobility? When I say hypermobility, I mean the genetic inherited condition that we call hypermobility. So I don't refer to it as anything about like flexibility or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. something that needs to be diagnosed by a healthcare professional through a blood test. Mm -hmm. They tend to refer to it in the research as a disorder, Mm -hmm. which I don't like to do because I'm not a healthcare professional. So I just like to call it a human variation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But so it's a genetic inherited collagen condition. So it's like a genetic mutation that can be detected by a blood test. Yes. Okay. Yes. And one of these conditions has been getting more attention lately, which is EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Is Mm -hmm. EDS just one uh, of the mutations that creates hypermobility or is that like, are they one in the same? It's one of the types. Okay. Um, And I'm not the person to ask about the differences between all the, you know, medical variations of it. Most healthcare professionals aren't even aware of it. <laughs> um, my interest in in it lies mostly in the kind of gross overview of what hypermobility is and what symptoms come with hypermobility as a whole, as mm-hmm. a group, 
you know, as a connective tissue disorder mm-hmm. and how that applies to yoga teachers and what we do. As far as the, you know, medical distinctions between different diagnoses, you'd want to talk to somebody who's, you know, very involved in that type of research. And that's all really new stuff. Just right. to be honest, the research on this is very, very new and it's finally gaining some visibility, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. What what happens when medical conditions gain visibility is then we also have a bunch of self-diagnosis and informal diagnosis that follows that. So it's good. And then of course there's the, the backlash that is that we're talking about it almost too much. And we're talking about it in ways that show that we don't really quite understand what it is. And that's where, that's what I'd like to do in this podcast of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of get clarity on what we know and what we don't know mm-hmm. and get clarity on what we can do in the yoga realm and what we shouldn't be doing in the yoga realm and how to pass that on. Yeah. Yeah. I mainly ask the EDS question just out of personal interest. Cause I, I mm-hmm. just see people talking about it more and more and I, I yes. And I feel really murky about all of this as well. So so that that's clear. Um so what are we talking about in terms of symptoms of hypermobility? What are some of the ways it can manifest? Lots of ways. So many ways. I'm going to back up a little bit and get the, the way that I do and give a little bit of like a, a foundational background so that we can really talk about the symptoms so they make sense to people, you mm-hmm. know, so I'm not just throwing a bunch of symptoms out. So let's just kind of back up and just recognize it as a collagen variation, or again, a collagen disorder, I'll just call it a variation, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, what this means is that the molecular structure of the collagen, so now we're talking at a microscopic level, right, the molecular structure of the collagen, let's say it's disrupted, there are some molecular bonds that are not as strong as in what I'm mean, using air quotes now, normal connective tissue. So that I think people can understand what I'm talking about. Let's just use a sweater as an example, as an analogy. So a sweater has a certain stitch to it, right? Something that you would might have, you know, grandma might have knit for you. And if each kind of connection between the yarn is a molecular bond, let's just say, and some of those were disrupted, you had some holes in your sweater, the connective tissue would have a different set of properties or a different set of behaviors, so to speak. Everybody can, I think, understand that. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking at with hypermobility. And that's where I'm saying like, whether it's EDS or a different type is, it's not super relevant for this discussion. We can just understand that it's in the structure. Once you have this situation, now we're going to think about all of the different connective tissue locations in the body, right? Like what types of tissue do we have? Right. We only have four types of tissue in the human body. We have I don't think I knew nervous that. tissue. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I know. We have nervous tissue, right? So our nervous system. We have muscle tissue, which is contractile. And we have different types of muscle tissue, you know, cardiac and skeletal and smooth. So nervous tissue, muscle tissue. We have epithelium, which is like everywhere, which is our skin and most of our organs. And we have connective tissue. So we have four types of tissue in the body which means connective tissue is everywhere. And so I think that's really important to bring up when we start talking about symptoms here in a moment, because we think when we say connective tissue casually, we think we mean tendons and ligaments. But what about the connective tissue that's in our cardiovascular system that make up the arteries and the veins, right? What Mm -hmm. about the connective tissue? Like most organs and all systems are made up of a combination of these types of tissues. So when we say hypermobility, it's just such an unfortunate name because it makes us think of flexibility, right? But when we're talking about, if we're looking at it as just a connective tissue disorder, 
Now we're not surprised when the list of symptoms that comes along with it are things like mitral valve prolapse, mm -hmm. right? Which is when you have heart palpitations or like irregular heartbeat, low blood pressure. I'm sure you've heard of POTS, which is where you, when you stand up quickly, you have a hard time regulating your blood pressure. Things like irritable bowel syndrome, things like mast cell activation disorder, which sounds super scary, but it basically means that your mast cells excessively excrete chemical mediators that make you go into like an allergic response and, huh. and, and anaphylactic uh, oh symptoms, gosh, so to speak, I was just like hives. That's so interesting. I was just talking to a friend from high school whose daughter has that, yep. and it took years for them to diagnose it. Anytime she feels a sort of stress response, she mm -hmm. has like an anaphylactic response. Yep. Oh yep. my gosh. So that's why it's so important to talk about this stuff because you might not actually present with any excessive flexibility, huh. but have this connective tissue variation that results in some of these symptoms. Just other things to think of, you know, like just poor sleep quality, a lot of anxiety, chronic pain, chronic fatigue. I mean, this is just a short list of symptoms that you can have when you have hypermobility. So I guess one question I have is, why is it, and you might not know the answer to this, this might not be relevant for this conversation, but I'm just curious as to like, why has it taken so long for this to be recognized? And is there any treatment for it right now? As far as treatments go, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. It's a genetic inherited disorder. Mm -hmm. So it would be for any sort of like treatment that would handle that. That's we're now we're talking about genetic stuff that, you know, there needs to be money in it. This mm -hmm. is the, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. who's going to fund that? And so it's really more about managing symptoms, I think is really what they're talking about in the research. That's what I see the most. Mm -hmm. It's complicated because it is a spectrum disorder, right? And we all know what a spectrum is. So basically you can be very low functioning or very high functioning. Mm -hmm. So you could just have one of the symptoms and none of the others and have it not be a really big deal. Even as far as your actual musculoskeletal connective tissue, it could be like localized to one area of the body mm -hmm. and no, have it, you could have it nowhere else, or mm -hmm. it could be global. You know, I mean, like one of my friends who actually learned most of this from her name is Catherine Cowie. She's a personal trainer up in San Francisco and she has hypermobility. And so we've collaborated on some coursework together and she has it so systemic that like she has a hard time constricting her eyes when she goes from dark to light outside. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it can manifest in any tissues that have collagen in them where there's that, that tensional stretchy component, which is our, our body, you know, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it really becomes with the research that we have and the conversations that we're having today, it just becomes a issue of just getting people to be aware of it and then knowing how to manage their symptoms. As far as why it's not recognized, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's roughly, I think Catherine says like 20% of the population has it. So that being said, that's not, you know, 20% of the population has a lot of things. You know, we, it's, a, it's just, again, it's this human variation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so hard to pinpoint because it is a spectrum disorder. And if we wanted to like take it even further, you know how I call it human variation. Like let's take it even further and instead of just isolating hypermobility as specific condition. Let's just talk about connective tissue on an entire spectrum as a whole. And mm -hmm. I think we talked about this on our last podcast, 
we talked about the Vikings versus the temple dancers, I think, and the different when I when I was on, you know, I think it was six months ago or something, but we were talking about like the different textures of people's and stiffnesses of people's connective tissue, mm-hmm. different populations. Well, let's expand that to include hypermobility. So let's put hypermobility way on one side and then having the temple dancer body type. And then moving to the right, we have the, you know, the, the stiffer tissue of the Viking body type. And then if we go even further, we now would have what's on the opposite of the spectrum of hypermobility. And that would not be hypomobility because hypomobility is defined as limited range of motion. Mm-hmm. And that has not, that's not what we're talking about, you know? So the opposite end of hypermobility would be ankylosing spondylitis, which is a condition where your connective tissue crystallizes and hardens, hmm. which is the exact opposite of what's happening in hypermobility. So we can look at it as this huge spectrum. And if we take hypermobility and put it in this spectrum of humanity and human variation, it just becomes a very small percentage. And so I think that's why it's just not getting a lot of recognition. And then, sorry, I keep talking, I have so much to say about it, but then we add to that yoga is a stretchy mm-hmm. type of activity where they might, some people with hypermobility might just have natural flexibility, but also tend to feel really tight. And so they, they're drawn to stretchy types of things. And so we might, in our community, see a greater percentage because there's a selection bias, right? right so right. like yoga selects people with hypermobility. So it seems like a really big deal to us. But as far as the population at large, it's not. Right, right, right. So and this is why I think so many of us are so interested in this as yes. a topic, because we wonder, you know, there's just things just swing on a pendulum, right? So mm-hmm. Now that yoga is so popular in the West, the question mm-hmm. is like, is this actually good for us? You know, should we be stretching so much? Should we be going so deep? There are so many injuries that are resulting from yoga. <laughs> what do we do about this? And on and on and on. So what can a yoga teacher in a room actually do about the possibility of having hypermobile students? Or what mm-hmm. should they do? Or what should they not do? In okay. res- yeah, that's a Good big question. And and there's, you know, lots to talk about with that. So I think we, we can have fun with that. Okay. The first thing is that what you would do with a student with hypermobility, you can also do with any other student. So this should put yoga teachers at ease. It's not like you need to divide your class and diagnose in your own mind who has hypermobility and who does not. So it's not like there's a special treatment. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. anybody will benefit from slow tempoed isometric work. So that's like, that makes it easy, right? The stuff's good for everybody. (laughs) But one of the things that's important, I think, is to really teach a student, any student, how to engage a muscle group surrounding a joint. And that in of itself will provide a sense of joint stability, a sense of, you know, tension around the joint which will then send a signal to the nervous system that they don't have to feel so tight because that's kind of the weird conundrum is Mm. a lot of times people with hypermobility feel tight because tight is not a cause, but rather an effect, right? It's a symptom and they feel tight because they feel like they have limited joint awareness, you know, or they feel like the joint doesn't have a lot of support because the tension around the, in the joint caps around the joint is sort of compromised right? Due to this molecular structure of the collagen. And so the muscles are like constantly in the state of contractions. That's why they like Mm. the feeling of stretch. 
But sometimes if you just strengthen around the joint or teach the muscles to contract, you know, co-contract around the joint, now the nervous system gets the signal that the joint is safe and protected. It's no longer needs to be guarded. And the sensation of tightness goes away without feeling of stretching all the time. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. I hope that, that was clear. It's hard <clears throat> no, to that totally makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, but then again, just to, you know, go back to, you can do this with anybody. This actually works with all people. Like even people who have limited range of motion, they actually can get benefits by feeling awareness around a joint, putting tension into the joint. So again, it's like, you don't have to necessarily break your class into two. It's just maybe the approach, maybe the emphasis isn't on pulling on things as much as it is about creating support around a joint. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can do that in all kinds of ways. One of the ways is isometrics. Like we already do that in yoga. It's already built into the yoga practice, holding poses, mm -hmm. you know, holding a standing pose gives somebody time to feel as long as they're like working, you know, right? <laughs> um, right. they're just hanging out. They're not. And mm -hmm. that might be a problem with people with hypermobility because they don't feel very well. They have limited proprioception. That's a, a common symptom. And that's why we can use props. We can use walls, uh, we can use bolsters, we can use, you know, balls, sandbags, anything that gives them a reference point for, for proprioceptive input. Hmm. Oh, it's so interesting. You know, my, my daughter um, struggles with sensory integration. I mean, she's, mm -hmm. she's so much better now, but they struggle a lot with proprioception as well. Sometimes they are uh, turn away from proprioceptive input, but she's a, she's a person who feels really good with a lot of proprioceptive mm -hmm. input. She still likes to eat dinner in Jason's lap with him, like holding her. Mm -hmm. It just well, feels grounding to her. Yes. This is why when we do a restorative class, why, you know, some people love the sand, the, the eye pillows in the hands, you know, or the sandbag, like yeah. supporting a, a shoulder or something, you know, that weight, you can go to restorative training. Everyone's tucking themselves into blankets and tucking the corners <laughs> and, you know, yeah. because that, that is a response to that. It's that feeling of hugging, you know, these weighted blankets. I want to go back for just a moment. Yeah. So can you be watching a very flexible student and that student is flexible, but not hypermobile? Yes. Okay. That can happen. That's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So you can be flexible and hypermobility and have hypermobility. You can not be flexible and hyper have hypermobility. Again, you can be flexible in your fingers, but nowhere else, you mm -hmm. know? So that's why it is so tricky. But at the same time, it's not <laughs> because it's not our job to point out who has hypermobility. We just might, if we suspect it or, or they tell us sometimes that, you know, then we just treat the whole class as, okay, today we're going to do this kind of work and, and it, it'll be okay. Like, I think that should just be a part of any yoga classes, teaching people how to support around a joint. Like, that's right. what I mean. It's, we don't need to separate things out. It's just knowing this information will help us as a community as a whole add to kind of the shift that's already occurring, which is let's do a little bit less passive stuff and let's add some components of, of strengthening and some isometrics. We we're really loading around a joint to the work and then we're okay. You don't think that the range of motion is necessarily the problem? Catherine and I go back and forth about this because here's the thing, like, let's just use elbow hyperextension mm -hmm. as an example. Okay. So if your elbow hyperextends, it's because the bone structure allows for it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you have a collagen variant. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Like yeah. they're different things. You can hyperextend in the elbows and not have hypermobility. 
but you could. So it, it that's yeah. not an indicator. So now we're running into this issue and I see it online all the time where you have the foundation of never hyperextend, always do a micro bend. The, the hyperextension is bad. It's going to cause extra friction in the joint and cause early onset arthritis mm-hmm. and all these beliefs that we've you know all been told when the research doesn't support that. Right. It just doesn't. It was just a belief that we've perpetuated. And now that we're actually putting it to a test, we're just not sure. I'm not saying it isn't true. I'm just saying we don't know, mm-hmm. you know? So so then you have the backlash, which now you see all, all over the internet, like tr- you should be training in hyperextension. That's the safest way. Oh, wow. You know, and, and, and <laughs> I haven't seen I that talk, yet. I haven't oh seen gosh, that. Yeah, no. I see it all the time. Well, you if you have hyperextension, you should train it. Why not? You know, oh and gosh. I think that's a little premature as well. It's like the backlash of the original premature thought, you know? Yeah. So I'm not really certain, but I've discussed it with Catherine at length because she has hypermobility. And she's really on on the side of, it just goes back to our yoga principles, is providing information to give autonomy to the student. Catherine herself does not enjoy being in the position of hyperextension because it sends her nervous system into overdrive. Hmm. She doesn't enjoy it. You know what I mean? So, but somebody who enjoys it and actually might, you know, want to train in it, but has no issues, then who are we to limit that? I'm guessing. So jury's still out per se, but really it's more about what is the issue with hyperextension? The issue with hyperextension is a, if it's not feeling good for someone and sending their nervous system overdrive, that's not good. And then the second one is most people in hyperextension are completely disengaged. And is that a problem or is that not? If you're in quadruped and your elbows are hyperextended, you're probably fine. It's not, but you know, it's not, nothing's happening. You're just hanging out there. But going back to it, what's our job as yoga teachers, like maybe it's nice to teach someone how to engage the muscles around the elbow so that then when they do want to go past straight, they understand the difference between the feeling of being engaged and not engaged. And now they can start making choices for themselves. They're, they're, they have increased proprioception and awareness and embodiment that they might not have had before, because let's be real, you know, most people in our culture that walk into a, a yoga class for the first time don't have a big kinesthetic IQ. You know, mm-hmm. that's just not, we don't value that in our culture. So, so we can use this as teaching opportunities to invite conversations and really allow people to know the difference between just hanging out and engaging, and then they can start to make choices for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I mean, I've my knees hyperextend. I honestly don't know if that's how I would have developed anyway, or if it's because I did gymnastics and ballet mm-hmm. like for my entire formative yep. musculoskeletal years. Mm-hmm. So I have like zero pain with my knees hyperextending. It's mm-hmm. never been a problem. Like I I've had so many teachers mm-hmm. call it out to me. And I just yep. get so irritated because yep. it's really just an aesthetic issue for them. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's interesting. And, and there's something shameful about it when you get right, called out. Do right. you know what I mean? Like, you're like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you have that part in your book where you say we're told to micro bend the knee, right? Mm-hmm. With the thinking that if we micro bend the knee, we won't stress. I think this is what the thinking is. We won't stress mm-hmm. the joint, but mm-hmm. your point is that doesn't create any tension no. across the joint. That it doesn't, doesn't create any support. Just, just bending, you can bend the, you can micro bend the knee and still have your muscles be super relaxed. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So yeah, it's That's not, what it does, it does. It's not teaching you to engage. It does. In, in most cases, bending, micro bending the elbow or the knee actually like offloads 
it, it just makes you kind of soft. It doesn't teach you how to distribute that tension, you know? Right. So it's when we make the position more important than, than everything else. And I love that that's an example that you have because that I see that a lot. It's a real world example where people have hyperextension in some area and they're fine. Like yeah. <laughs> they can do everything they want to do. Right. So, so now because I learned, you know, in a weekend course that you should always hyperextend with microbending, I'm now taking autonomy away from the student and I, I'd rather give it back to the student, you know, like let's look at all these different ways, mm-hmm. what's best for you. And can you recognize the difference between supporting the joint and not supporting the joint? That's like, that's more important. That's true. And that is like, that is a hugely empowering thing to learn because I don't think I had any awareness of that before even having danced my whole life. That was not in my, that just wasn't in my awareness. I just did the positions of that you do in dance and I learned to engage the muscles to do those positions. It was all very uneven in my body, Mm -hmm. you know, anyway. So here is like a huge question. I'm totally putting you on the spot. Since we do have an awareness that, you know, there are injuries that occur for Mm -hmm. people doing yoga, and that seems to be coming more and more to light, do you Mm -hmm. think that hypermobility and the combination of being hypermobile and perhaps spending too much time stretching and doing yoga poses could be contributing to that? I can't answer that without a clear understanding of what we mean by injury, you know, Mm -hmm. because injury is complex, right? Tissue damage and pain don't correlate very well. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I am absolutely of the belief that doing a lot of end range stretchy stuff without learning a lot of co-contraction for someone with hypermobility can absolutely exacerbate painful symptoms. Mm -hmm. Is that how we're defining an injury? Do you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. are, are they are they more likely to tear something? I that I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think we have any real evidence for that. The connective tissue is pretty resilient. Or you know, are they getting more arthritis? Again, like that, we're not we're not sure about that. So, mm-hmm. but most of us, just non in a non medical setting, most of us in yoga, I would say, an injury is something that hurts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like if your shoulder starts to hurt, it's an injury. Whether I have a rotator cuff tear or not doesn't make a difference because if the shoulder hurts, it's an injury. That's kind of how I see it. Like, mm-hmm. so let's kind of have that conversation. I do think some of the stretchy stuff for people with hypermobility can make them feel less stable again, because it, so much of the stretching narrative is around letting go, you know? That being said, there's like types of stretching, like resistance stretching, where you contract the muscle concentrically, isometrically, and eccentrically through the range. That is actually really good for people with hypermobility. Catherine mm-hmm. and I talk about this all the time because now you're actually shortening and lengthening a muscle while against resistance. So, so it can depends you give on- an example of that? Like, can you walk us through what that would be? So a resistance stretch is usually done with a partner, but you can definitely self-resistance stretch. But a resistance stretch would be where there's resistance. So somebody's somebody's giving you resistance with their hand, you know, it's a partner stretch. And you're first pushing into them. So let's just say, basically, let's just say you're on your back and you want to do a hip flexor, you know, stretch, we'll just say. And so somebody would be giving you resistance while you try to flex your hip. Mm-hmm. And that would be concentric. And then you kind of hold isometrically for a little bit. And then then they 
will lengthen your hip flexor while you're still trying to concentrically contract it. So now it's an eccentric contraction. Mm -hmm. So you've basically taken your hip from extension to flexion, you know, and uh, the front of your hip from extension to flexion and back to extension, but the whole time there's been resistance. So you're engaging the muscle through this range, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So that's still a stretch, you know what I mean? But you're actively participating in the stretch. So I think it's not just stretching because you stretch all the time. Your intention, we're a tensegrity system. You know what I mean? Like anytime you move, something gets stretched. So it's not necessarily the stretch. It's the emphasis on letting go that might exacerbate symptoms. Mm -hmm. Will stretching cause hypermobility? It can't because it's a genetic inherited spectrum disorder. You know what I mean? Like it's not something that, I'm sure Jason can stretch forever and will never develop hypermobility. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yes. it's, it's in your genetic makeup. I think that's one thing we tend to talk about yoga as if it's causing hypermobility. It's not. It's just bringing hypermobility, those with hypermobility, it's bringing it to the foreground and now we're noticing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that for someone who is hypermobile, but let's say they're kind of low on the spectrum, like it's not debilitating in their day-to-day life, do you think that doing yoga could exacerbate symptoms? I wouldn't be able to say that with any confidence. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, it would, I'd have, it's so individual because mm-hmm. what symptoms are we talking about? You know, what if they don't have a lot of musculoskeletal joint stuff? What if they just have, I mean, will yoga exacerbate mitral valve prolapse? You know, probably not. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's such a, will yoga help people sleep? Because poor sleep quality is one of the symptoms. So and that if that's a symptom, then yoga will help, you know, mm-hmm. like, and mm-hmm. so it, it's too complex to make such a, you know, reductionist statement, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But that's what it is when you're dealing with the human body, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like the takeaway is that you're just in the yoga room to build as much awareness as possible. And that's just nobody has all the answers. Yes. We have some, some interesting answers. You know, we have the interesting answers to certain questions, but like you said, it's just too complex and individual. And it sounds to me and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like your point of view would be end range of motion is not necessarily bad. Mm-hmm. But it needs to be balanced by, you know, strength work as well and isometrics mm-hmm. as well. And also that end, end range of motion, I think we have glorified sort of these end point of poses. If you want to kind of work there and work on that, that's fine. But that it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the goal toward the healthiest balance for each person. I mean, really, if you want to do fancy, you know, contortionist stuff, by all means, go for it. It's not my job to impose my beliefs on you. But I can teach you that, you know, the difference between being there and the difference between actually having control of it, like those Mm -hmm. are two different things. I can do that. And I can provide you with all the information so that you can make choices for yourself. You know, it's like, it's so complicated. (laughs) And also, like, you know, when you're in your 20s, stuff doesn't hurt the same way. So like, like, I mean, I I think about this all the time. You know, I started yoga in in undergrad. So I was like 20, probably. If I were talking to my 20 year old self right now, I would think I was such an old miser that didn't, (laughs) (laughs) that, that didn't get me, that didn't understand, you know, 
listening to myself 25 years later would have been just like, oh my God, like you're so unrelatable. So, so I like, we can provide information, but we can't make people listen. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone kind of has their own journey. So it's just, I just find it really hard when you go on social media and you see just everyone attacking people in these end range poses. That's not helping. Hmm. You're attacking them and telling them they're going to hurt themselves. Like they're not listening. You've lost them already. You know, like mm -hmm. what's more interesting is inviting them into a conversation, asking them questions, like, because you just can't impose your ideas on the world. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, another point for, of what you're saying is our body changes, our life stages change yeah. and we change. And I feel similarly, there are certain things I just won't do anymore. And it's not like I made a conscious decision like, oh, that's not good for me. So I'm not mm -hmm. going to, it's that it doesn't feel good. So I just yep. naturally am not do really going to do it anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to push myself into something that doesn't feel natural anymore. That might have felt yep. natural 15 years ago. And I think you really like you really said the essence of what I'm saying, you know, in your in your last statement, which was about like the yoga room and what we're doing in the yoga room. And it's to build awareness. So if we're really helping people build awareness and develop proprioception and be able to make choices for themselves about the poses. Telling them they're wrong is the worst way to build awareness. You know what I mean? You yeah. So, so it's like we can teach them. We can teach them about this ability to contract and control these ranges, and then at the end they get to choose what they want to do. But at least they've now built the awareness, and they can say, "Oh, this is the difference. This is the difference of doing this extreme pose." without any resistance versus with resistance. You know what I mean? Like, oh, now I'm using a wall and I actually have to push into something and I can't push into it here. Oh, now I see the difference. And then then it's really up to them if they want to take the photo for the Instagram. And that's what the yoga room, I think, is is really for. Is is It's an environment for people to look within and develop their own embodiment. I, you know, I do so many other types of activities and nothing comes close to that than yoga, like, you know, personal training, like that. Yes. It's all about movement and exercise and proprioception, but there's something really special about yoga where it's, it's quiet. You mm -hmm. get, you get to turn inward and you get to learn about your body. And that's, I just, I, that's my favorite thing about yoga. It's so special that mm -hmm. nothing comes close. Yeah. This is such an interesting conversation for me. I, I thought I didn't know what to expect going into it. And I thought you might have a few more like warnings about hypermobility or flexibility or. Um, I do. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, one of them is just to be really careful if you're a yoga teacher, because one of the common, you know, symptoms that comes along with hypermobility is, you know, anxiety and kind of brain fog. And I feel like when we just very loosely hurl you know, <laughs> diagnoses or, or like, you know, oh, you're hyperextending at that particular population. It's especially difficult for them to receive. It's like built into the symptoms. When I was actually filming my online course with Catherine, it was really interesting because she has hypermobility. So I did all the talking and she did all the poses and you know, she did all the demo demos. And when we were done, we had some time left to film like some promo videos, you know, we'd hired the videographer for so many hours. And she was so in her mind, like, 
we were done. Like it was so compartmentalized for her, you know, that we're done that when I casually was like, oh, let's just film a few three minute promo videos. Like it sent her into an anxiety attack. She like couldn't regulate her blood pressure. She thought she was going to pass out, oh, wow. you know, and, you know, yeah. and, and, but it was so meta, like she was having a hypermobility thing in a hypermobility course, you know, she, you know, ate some dried fruit and she did a handstand and she came back and was better, you know, but yeah. it was useful for me to see like, like she's different than me, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, to just be like, uh, just like to casually say, oh, you have hypermobility or you have hyperextension. Like you could say that to me and I'd be like, whatever, you know, but if you say that to someone actually with hypermobility, it, it starts to like manifest in a whole nervous system overdrive thing, you know? So I want us to be careful is kind of what my point is. I want us to choose our words carefully because if somebody just got a EDS diagnosis, for example, and this has happened to me in a course, they just got an EDS diagnosis and then they come in and tell you about it. And they're so sensitized to the, this diagnosis. Like it doesn't help to now like point at them out the whole class and be like, okay, so you do this. So, you know, it it almost makes it worse. Mm -hmm. So it's, all this information is so useful for teachers, but then we need to step back, take a deep breath and remember that we're still dealing with people and take into consideration kind of how their symptoms are manifesting and how we want to relate to them, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think that's makes, that's a really wise piece of advice. I mean, the other thing to think about is if someone is in fact hyper, hypermobile or has hypermobility, like you said, they're potentially in their symptoms. Mm-hmm. So just trying to be sensitive around, <laughs> yeah, like you said, not pointing it out, not exacerbating their symptoms. If they have anxiety, mm-hmm. gastrointestinal distress, mm-hmm. chronic pain, they're already in a difficult place. This is total conjecture, but I mean, it also just sounds like there's just like potentially hypersensitivity, right? So that makes sense. Like, for example, someone with hypermobility, they might experience more pain or sensitivity when there's like a lot of shearing forces at a joint. So when your joints aren't like super stacked. So let's just say like side plank, for example, side plank, if especially if like the top leg is lifted, now you're just on one leg, that knee of that bottom leg might experience just because of geometry, you know, it might mm-hmm. experience there's some shear forces going on there. And so that might feel really pinchy in somebody's knee that has like hypermobility. And so instead of like calling out the person, you know, like (laughs) you should put your knee down or, you know, then it's like, how, how can we be sensitive to what can we do for the entire class? Like, what are some ways that we can, you know, shorten the levers for the whole class? What are some ways? And then people can choose which one is best. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's kind of, everybody will benefit from the proprioceptive work. Everybody will benefit from the isometric work. Everyone will benefit from using the props for, for learning. So it doesn't have to be called out. Like it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. like, if you have hypermobility, this is what you should do. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, let's all do this. And then now you've learned something. And the next time you come to this pose in another class, you have options. Like you, you can do it the way you like. And so I think that's what's what it means to be a sensitive teacher, you mm-hmm. know, recognize. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're not all perfect all the time. I've done some horribly insensitive things, you know, but it's, I learn from it, hopefully, mm-hmm. every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like it just requires that you have more information in your back pocket. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, for anyone who's listening to this podcast, that's why people listen to it. And, you know, we're all just mm-hmm. learning together. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, this Absolutely. is a sort of an aside question, but I'm just curious 
Do you know how your friend Catherine was diagnosed? Like what type of doctor would actually be aware of this as a condition? I just yeah. don't, I just tend to think like a general practitioner would potentially blow it off. Most won't know about it. And mm-hmm. so that's really hard. She's just spent a lot of time, you know, re- like she's read every single, you know, research paper there is, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so, and she's spent a lot of time on it. I'm sure she has a network of doctors in the San Francisco Bay Area. So if you're in that area, you know, I'll I'll give you her contact info so that people can reach out to her because she's more than happy to help people. And she probably can advise on, you know, how to ask your doctors. But it's definitely like interview your doctor, ask them if they're aware of hypermobility, because if they're not reading the research in the last 10 years, it's not their fault. It's just Mm -hmm. it's not part of their curriculum. And so you know, ask around, ask your physios, ask your personal trainer friends, like ask people, you know, do you know any doctors that are familiar with this and that, you know, are able to discuss it and able to talk about symptom modifications and so on. And that would be my best bet. Just, you know, Mm -hmm. going into any random office is, you know, just kind of a a gamble. Right. Right. Um, That makes sense. Trying to put your feelers out and get referrals. mm -hmm. And, you know, people are starting to hear about it. You know, there's, I think there's an Instagram page about it's like an EDS society for yoga. They comment on my stuff sometimes. I just don't remember the exact name of the handle. Uh, I can f- get that to you as well. Okay. But I mean, there's a community of people is what, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like put yourself out there, reach out, talk to people. There is a community. You will be able to get help from friends and other yoga teachers and so on. Well, one of the first people that I saw talking about it is Lena Dunham, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. since, and she's just been really open about, you know, having chronic pain. And I don't know for sure because I don't follow her that closely, but it seems to me like she was just, you know, finally got a diagnosis fairly recently, like in maybe in the last year or so. And I think that's been really validating. I mean, I think if you're suffering with, like you said, these kind of, this kind of disparate array of things going on and you don't really know and it's not taken seriously, that can just be really difficult. And it's so interesting to me that there is a test, you know, there's yeah, mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's yeah. really, it's good news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Jules. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot. Fun. Yeah. Great. Good. Thanks as always for listening. I will put show notes with the links that Jules mentioned at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 178. And if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and share it on social media, share it with your loved ones. Or if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. We so, so, so appreciate it. Okay. Until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.